following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As I mentioned, we are starting into our Advent series uh, this Sunday. It's going to go on for four weeks. And uh, this year it's going to be a little bit different than we've, what we've done in the past. And through the generosity of Crossway Publishing, uh, we were able to get our hold of about 150 complimentary copies of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And so what we want to do is we want to give every household at ICC uh, a, one of these books as an early Christmas present to you. And so we basically have put them all on a table in the narthex in the back of the sanctuary. And so on your way out, we're going to invite all of you to, for each household to grab a copy of this book. What we ask is if you're married or have a family, just make sure, talk with your spouses to make sure you don't accidentally grab two copies of the book because then we're going to run out. Even if this is your first Sunday with us, uh, even if you're not an official member of the church, it's fine. Uh, no matter how long you've been attending ICC, you can feel free, everyone here, just as long as there's one per household, to go ahead and grab one of these books, okay? And what's going to happen <clears throat> is that we're going to use this book, Gentle and Lowly, as the basis of our four-part Advent series uh, this year. And so what I'm hoping that all of us do is that as you hear these messages each week, you're going to read through the book as an accompaniment to these sermons. And you can do it kind of two different ways. You can read it cover to cover. It's not a very thick book. You can probably actually read it in a couple sittings if you really wanted to. Uh, or you can actually read the specific chapters that are related to each message. And I'll actually indicate at the start of each message which are the relevant chapters uh, for that sermon because we're not going to go kind of sequentially uh, first sermon being chapters 1 through 4, next one 5 through 8, or something like that. I'm, I'm sort of jumping around to different chapters in the book to tie them thematically to each message. Okay? My other hope is that as you listen to the messages and read through the book, uh, you'll actually share with family members and friends some of the insights and convictions that you're getting through the message of this book. Uh, the, the author, Dane Ortland is actually the senior pastor of Naperville Presbyterian Church, uh, just in our neighborhood here, not far from us here in the Chicagoland area. And the book came out in March 2000, um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And um, I, I bought it almost as soon as it, it was released and uh, had really received some deep encouragement uh, from reading that book. At the, it was at a time when our church was in total lockdown. Actually, the whole world was in lockdown. All the ministry was being remotely done. And it was a very isolating and lonely time to be a pastor of this church. And it was during that time that I was reading through this book, Gentle and Lowly, and Ortland's words ministered to me really deeply uh, during that season. In fact, some of you may remember during those early Zoom prayer meetings, I was quoting from Ortland a number of times during those prayer meetings. Um, in his introduction, Ortland points out that there are many books on the works of Jesus, volumes and volumes written about what Jesus has done for us. But he says there are actually very few, hardly any, 
books that reveal the heart of God, the heart of God. And so um, throughout this book, what Ortland is going to do is highlight Bible passages that go beyond just the actions of Jesus, what Jesus did, and reveal what the heart of God is like. What does God feel toward us in his own heart? And so commenting on his target audience, uh, Ortland writes in his book, this book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. <coughs> for those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we have deeply disappointed him. Who have told others of the love of Christ, yet wonder if, as for us, he harbors mild resentment. Who wonder if we have shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired. Who are convinced we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord who have been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness. It is written, in other words, for normal Christians. In short, it is for sinners and sufferers. How does Jesus feel about them? You might know that Christ died and rose again on your behalf to rinse you clean of all your sin. But do you know his deepest heart for you? It is one thing to know the doctrines of the incarnation and the atonement and a hundred other vital doctrines. It is another more searching matter to know his heart for you. And so the subtitle of this book is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And as Ortland says, it's one thing to know that Jesus died for us. But what is his heart toward me? I think, truthfully, it's asking that question where so many of our insecurities as Christians lie. When it comes to my relationship with God, what does God feel toward me? Is he constantly upset or disappointed with me? Do my failures continue to anger him? I think we tend to question how God must feel about us, particularly when we are sinning or when we are suffering. Why is it in that difficult season of my life that I struggle with that? Well, because it raises the question, what does this indicate about how God feels toward me, about my relationship with him? Why is it that in my sin and in my suffering, God often feels so far away from me I think the truth is our best guess at trying to understand the heart of God is to take what we know in human experiences and apply them to our relationship with God. And what Ortland is going to show us time and time again through this book is how unlike us God is. That it is very dangerous to take what we experience in our human relationships and automatically transfer those same attitudes and feelings to God because in scripture after scripture that we're going to look at, God is going to reveal his own heart 
and tell us how he actually feels in these moments in our relationship with him. So for today's message, which I've titled God's Heart for Sinners, uh, the chapters in Ortland's book that we're going to focus on is chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 12, and chapter 18. These are the chapters in that book that are most closely tied with the themes I'm going to bring out in the sermon today. Okay? Now, if you're not able to write them down, you can check it out on our YouTube feed later, or they'll be on the email manuscript of the sermon that I'll send out either later today or tomorrow. Okay? Um, so let's uh, just get into the message itself right now. There is a danger of reducing the story of sin into nothing more than a story about rule-breaking. Rule-breaking. God, the rule-maker, gave us all of these rules that we need to obey. But because we have failed to obey all of his rules, he must now punish us. And framed in that way, it paints a picture of God that is very petty, doesn't it? Like a stickler, just waiting for us to mess up so that he can bust us. But this is not how the Bible tells the story of sin. The Bible tells the story of sin primarily through the lens and the language of relationship and of worship. What the Bible says is that we were made in the very image of God, created to be in a loving and trusting relationship with him and worshiping him alone. And as his image bearers, we were called to reflect his own character by the way that we care for his creation and live out God's intended purposes in our life. But instead of choosing that way of God, we have rejected God. We have turned our backs on him. We've, in essence, abandoned our calling as his image bearers. And we have worshipped idols. We have worshipped other gods rather than the one true God. In other words, the problem isn't so much that we couldn't meet God's high moral standard or keep all of his rules, but that we wanted to live life on our own terms. Therefore, we actively rebelled against him. Look at how the Bible describes things from God's perspective. Psalm 78, verse 40 to 41, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again, they put to the God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 65, verse 1 through 3, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me, I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. The picture that God is giving is I offered myself to a people who didn't want me, who really wanted nothing to do with me. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 through 3. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to, to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. 
but that they did not realize it was I who healed them. And so through these words, you can see how much our sin grieves the heart of God. In our rejection of God, though, also what the Bible tells us is that there is this built-in spirit of self-justification and denial of our guilt. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6-7, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By defiling food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Do you see the questions that are being asked of God? Quoted by the prophet here. How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you and your table? You see, these are the words of a person who isn't sorry for what they've done. There is a tone of defiance in these questions, isn't it? Even a denial. I have nothing, God, to apologize to you for because I have done nothing wrong, at least from my perspective. And it's as if the Israelites are telling God, how dare you accuse us of unfaithfulness? How dare you accuse us of these things? Prove to me that I'm guilty of them. Show me the evidence of how I have wronged you, God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Commenting on Dr. Lloyd-Jones's words, Ortland writes, we don't feel the weight of our sin because of our sin. It's like a couple going to marriage counseling. And the problem is one spouse has to be dragged in there kicking and screaming. Basically refusing to acknowledge that they have contributed anything to the problem in their marriage. And basically arguing defiantly, I have done nothing wrong. If you want to fix the marriage, talk to her and fix her. This is the baked-in, self-justifying spirit that is in sin. I have done nothing wrong. I have nothing to apologize for here. Don't blame me. That's really, sadly to say, the story of sin that the Bible tells, and that's just not even the half of it. And so here is the question that Ortland is wanting to ask which is going to be the focus of my message this morning. So how does God react to that? How does he respond to our rebellion and our rejection of him? And here's the thing. If God was like us, I think the response would be pretty predictable, wouldn't it? After all, how do we react when somebody treats us badly? I think our instinct is to respond in kind. We reject those who reject us. And maybe it's because of a wounded pride. Maybe it's out of an effort to protect ourselves. But the truth is almost all of us do that, don't we? The common reaction when someone hurts us like that is to withdraw. 
anyone who has broken our trust or hurt our feelings. The instinct is to pull away from them. And so it's not surprising to assume that this is how God must feel about us when we sin against him. But God reveals how unlike us he is. If you look at the book of Hosea, for 10 chapters, the prophet catalogs all of the ways that Israel has been unfaithful to him. And then at the end of all that, in chapter 11, in this total surprise, God says, but let me tell you what my heart is toward you in all of this. In Hosea 11, verse 7 to 9, hear God's words. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not like a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Did you catch the contrast that God is making between himself and us? He says, I am not a man. I am the Holy One that is in your midst. And Ortland comments on these verses. We are given a rare glimpse into the very center of who God is. And we see and feel the deep, affectional convulsing within the very being of God. His heart is inflamed with pity and compassion for his people. He simply cannot give them up. Nothing could cause him to abandon them. They are his. We read, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Is that what you expect God to say? Don't you actually deep down expect him to say the following with one small word change? I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will therefore come in wrath. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It is not loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Our hearts gasp to catch up with this. It is not how the world around us works. It is not how our own hearts work. But we bow in humble submission, letting God set the terms by which he will love us. In other words, it, what God is saying through these words to his people is this, I am not like you because I will not face your rebellion and rejection of me with my own wrath. I will confront it with my compassion that is actually ignited because of your sin 
And that makes no sense at all. But maybe one way we can understand how our sin could ignite compassion in God is to think of the situation of a mother who sees her daughter being ravaged by a disease. And rather than recoiling in horror at that hospital bedside, her love for her child is kindled even stronger because she wants to do everything in her power to rescue her daughter, to save her from the situation that she's in. And I think that's what God is saying to the Israelites. In the same way when God sees our sin, when he sees our brokenness and waywardness and rejection of him, there is a fierce love that gets ignited in his heart as he desires to rescue us from the sin that is ravaging us and breaking our relationship with him. What an astounding statement that Ortland makes. It is not our loveliness that wins his love. It is our unloveliness. Listen, Ortland is not saying that God is more in love with us the worse we behave, okay? He's not saying that. What he is saying, though, is that when we are struggling, rather than looking at our struggle and wanting to push us away in disgust. God is not turned off by that struggle, but his reaction is to want to pull us even closer to his heart because he wants to help us and protect us in our struggle with sin. As the prophet Zechariah says, Zechariah 2.8, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. His passion for you, his love for you is kindled when he sees you in sin because he wants to heal us of that sin and restore us. You see, when we see someone behaving badly, let's be honest here. Aren't we all turned off by that? Don't we basically want to pull away from those people in disgust? Don't we write them off and want nothing to do with them? But as crazy and as illogical as it sounds, when God sees the ugliness in us, he comes running to us in his jealous love, longing to restore us to the people that he created us to be. There's no way we can believe that but by faith because this is not how human relationships work in life. Chapter after chapter, the prophet Jeremiah lists all of the sins of Israel in graphic detail, just like he did in Hosea. And then after 30 chapters of this, you get to Jeremiah 31, and you find again these crazy words of God. Jeremiah 31, verse 20, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? That word Ephraim uh, is basically another nickname that God seems to use for Israel, especially when he's expressing affection for the nation. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. When God is saying that he remembers Israel, 
he is not talking about memory recall here. When he's talking about remembering his people, he is using covenant language. What he's saying is, when I remember my people, what he's saying is, I will never forsake them or abandon them, no matter what they have done against me. His commitment, in other words, to them is unwavering, unshakable. God is telling the Israelites, again, a revelation of what's actually happening in his heart. And he's, if you actually look at the Hebrew word that God is using here, he's saying, it is like there is a storm in my heart. There is a turbulence there. There is a restlessness that is being stirred up in the very depths of my heart. And what's happening is, out of that storm that's going on, there is an affection a longing, a yearning in the very heart of God for his rebellious people. In other words, God is saying, there is something so deep in me that aches for you. It aches for you. There is a pain in my heart because of this relationship that is broken with you. Because of what I see in your lives as you are savaged by sin. Can I ask this? Is this how you picture God when you think about how he feels toward you when you're thinking about the guilt of your sin? Betty and I are in this season of our life right now when our kids are all just about grown up. Judah is our youngest and two more years will be empty nesters. And it is so hard to get the family together for even one meal, even over the holidays. And I cannot describe to you the joy that I feel when our kids come home from college. And we're all sitting around the table. I used to take it for granted. In fact, it used to give me headaches because family of seven it was so noisy all the time. That they're everyone yapping and talking about some, something that is just so noisy. <laughs> and yet, I miss those days now so much. And so, during this Thanksgiving week when, when the kids were home, It's hard to communicate the joy that I felt just hearing their voices as everyone was talking to each other. And yet, even as we were celebrating Thanksgiving together as a family, there was still the secret pain in my heart because our second daughter, Noelle, who's uh, out in the East Coast for medical school, couldn't join us because she wasn't really given enough time off. And here's the thing. It has nothing to do with their academic success or their career success. It has nothing to do with how physically attractive they are or how popular they are among their friends. As their father, there's just something so deep in me that yearns for them, that yearns for them. I just so jealously wish none of them could find a mate to get married. (laughs) They'll all move back home and... Our family will be restored, and Joy already messed that up um, because she's married now and has her own family. But I think as a father, I just have a glimpse of what God is saying here to Israel, saying, when I see you turning your back on me, when I see you living your life independent of me and wanting less and less of me in your life, as a father, that doesn't kindle my anger. There is something in the very heart of God that says, I yearn for you. I yearn for you. Ortland says, whom do you perceive him to be in your sin and your suffering? 
Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. How does he feel about you? His saving of us is not cool and calculating. It is a matter of yearning, not yearning for the Facebook you, the you that you project to everyone around you, not the you that you wish you were, yearning for the real you, that you underneath everything you present to others. The world is starving for a yearning love, a love that remembers instead of forsakes, a love that isn't tied to our loveliness, a love that gets down underneath our messiness, a love that is bigger than the enveloping darkness we might be walking through even today, a love of which even the very best human romance is the faintest of whispers. I hope you are grasping the point that Orland is making here. What he's saying is even in our sin and suffering, God yearns for us. He is not waiting for us to clean up our act or to overcome our doubts that rise when we are in pain before he will embrace us, even as we struggle with besetting sin or question in our pain whether he is even there. God says, I yearn for you. And that's the God of the Old Testament. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we find Jesus in the New Testament displaying the same heart of his heavenly father during his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 36. Or just, we're going to look at just verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In Mark's gospel, we actually get the specific context of these words. Jesus' ministry was insanely busy, and he and his disciples were working to the point of utter exhaustion. And so wanting to get some rest for them, he invited them to retreat from the crowd onto a boat and escape to a private place where they could have their own personal retreat, a time of rest and relaxation. But this crazy crowd sees them taking off on this boat and they calculate the trajectory of the boat and they run along the shoreline and they figure out where they're going to dock. And so when the disciples reach the shore, they see the same crowd that they just left and they're waiting for them on this other shore. And they're all saying, help us, Jesus, help us. And rather than responding with irritation and anger at their failure to show any boundary lines, It says that Jesus looked at this crowd and his heart broke for them. It broke for them. Because he looked at them and he said, man, these are like shepherdless sheep who are desperate and looking for any help that they can get. My compassion grows warmer and tender. I am God, not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. My heart yearns for them. The religious leaders were all scandalized because of the kind of people that Jesus hung out with during his earthly ministry. Matthew 11, verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Notice the specific accusation that they make against him. He befriends the worst of sinners. 
I think it could have been understandable and acceptable if he ministered to sinners as an act of charity, as an act of pity. But Jesus, in their perspective, crossed the line when it went beyond ministry concerns and he actually befriended these people, started actually hanging around them and making them part of a social circle. He had gone too far. Ortland writes, it is not his disciples but his antagonists who most clearly perceive who Jesus is. Though the crowds called him the friends of sinners as an indictment, the label is one of unspeakable comfort for those who know themselves to be sinners. That Jesus is friend to sinners is only contemptible to those who feel themselves not to be in that category. What does it mean that Christ is a friend to sinners? At the very least, it means that he enjoys spending time with them. It also means that they feel welcome and comfortable around him. When they called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners, I think that label was meant in the truest sense of the word friend. These people that were hated by the rest of society actually considered Jesus their friend. When Jesus showed up at their party, he didn't stand at a distance with his arms folded quietly judging them because of the ostentatiousness of their house or the behavior of their children or how much makeup or jewelry their wives were wearing. And he didn't wonder why you invited certain people to this party who had a checkered past. Maybe the other religious leaders would have done that, but Jesus didn't. I think people genuinely enjoyed having Jesus at their parties. And I make no apologies for using this picture. I love this picture. I think the truth is when Jesus was at a party, he genuinely enjoyed being there. And I think sinners genuinely enjoyed having them at their party because he enjoyed them. In other words, his love for sinners extended beyond helping them out of pity. He actually enjoyed their company, spending time with them. My compassion grows warm and tender. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. My heart yearns for them. I want to say this. This particular truth ministered to me the most deeply this week as I was preparing the sermon. Because I feel a bit embarrassed to admit this, but the truth is, I don't think I have ever thought of my relationship with Jesus as a friendship. As a friendship. it always felt a little more transactional to me than that. And it really never occurred to me that Jesus might actually genuinely enjoy my company and actually want to spend time with me, even if it's not about accomplishing some particular agenda that he has on his heart. 
that he just enjoys being with me. And here's the truth is if I'm honest, I tend to be very hesitant about sharing more deeply about what's going in my life personally with others. Because the truth is, I'm often skeptical that the other person really cares genuinely what's going on in my life. As a pastor, so often I feel like the stream only flows one way. Me ministering to you, you know? And the truth is, I have my own built-in sort of guardedness about openly sharing what's going on in my life because there is a skepticism there. Do you really want to know? Do you really care about me? Um, I have a group of friends, though, that I've known since college, and I don't think that way about them. They are what I would call my inner circle, my closest confidants. And we met together, we meet together once a year, and this year we met in Austin, Texas, a month ago. And during that meeting, I revealed pretty vulnerably some of the things that I'm struggling with. And after that meeting in Austin, one of those friends particularly uh, really reached out to me and kept pursuing me, phone call after phone call, wanting to do everything he could to help me in the struggle I was going through. He even really um, went through a lot of uh, struggle to connect me with some other people that he thought could be of help to me for the particular things that I was wrestling with. And... I never questioned his sincerity because I know he cares about me because he's a true friend of mine. And as strange as it sounds, I don't think I ever put Jesus into that category. The truth is, I think it almost felt a little disrespectful to think of him in that way. But it has actually helped my prayer life a lot because when I began to think of Jesus as a close friend that actually cares about me, it didn't feel as much like I was bothering him with my problems when I was praying. The prayers actually this week flowed a lot more easily because it was on the other side of that conversation, a picturing of a Jesus who is genuinely concerned and cared about the things that I'm bringing to him. Dallas Willard defines prayer in the following way. Prayer to the God of Israel and of Jesus, the living and personal God of the universe, is intelligent conversation about matters of mutual concern. I love that definition of prayer. Prayer is an intelligent conversation about matters of mutual concern. In other words, we can pray with the understanding that God is already deeply invested in the things that matter to us. That I enter into that prayer with the confidence that God isn't pretending interest, but he is absolutely deeply invested in my life and cares deeply about the things that matter to me. This is where I think we need to start with our series on Advent. In those darkest moments, when you feel that you're in the depth of your sin, or in the depth of your suffering, and you are at the height of your insecurities, and you're asking yourself, how does God 
feel about me in this moment? I think what God is saying to us through these texts is in that moment, there is a compassion that is ignited in my heart for you. There is a yearning, even though you are keeping me at arm's length, there is a yearning in me for you that you have no idea of. And I want to draw you into myself. Earlier, before I began preaching, we listened to Gemma's testimony at her baptism. And she shared in the face of everything that she was enduring in her life, she was asking herself that very real question, am I under a curse? Am I being punished by God that I have to go through all this in my life? What did I do to deserve all this? But her journey of faith led her to a totally different conclusion, which she shared at the end of her testimony, was summarized by Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Rather than believing that she was living under his punishment, Gemma came to see that God had always been faithful to her and that she was never alone. God would never forsake her. And I pray as we enter into this year's Advent season that this is a truth that every one of you will discover in your own journey of understanding God's heart for you. Let's pray.